Well, the topic uh, of this evening's message is out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. You can turn there. Um, and the, the topic of living with an eternal perspective is something that's been on my mind for a long time and something that I've had multiple opportunities to speak on and to teach about and to study. And one of the reasons why the topic of living with an eternal perspective is so impactful to us and something that I think resonates in our hearts is because we often feel the pains and difficulties of life. And we feel those oftentimes so deeply. As believers, our hope is gaining an eternal weight of glory, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. And we know that God is something built for us in the heavens for us. But sometimes I think we are drawn to, to think deeply about having an eternal perspective because only because of, of those difficulties that we face now when we know that the eternity that awaits what God is preparing for us is, is, is good, it is great, it is worthy of hope and worthy to look forward to. But sometimes I think our hearts can be drawn there out of a desire to not suffer and not deal with the difficulties and the consequences of sin here and now versus having an appetite to be with God and to worship Him. And one thing that I, I've, I've thought about is I, I don't want my desire for eternity and to build an eternal perspective of my life to be driven by the fact that I want to be done suffering. How do I build a biblical perspective of eternity? How do I build that longing in, in my life? How do I practically grow in focusing on the eternal over the temporal? And Jesus speaks to this issue in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, a while ago, Pastor Rag was, was preaching, and he mentioned the idea of practical atheism. I'm not sure if you remember him mentioning that. The idea of practical atheism looks at the reality of life that one lives to judge whether that person actually believes in God. We can give a verbal assent to what we believe about God. We can be theologically accurate. We could write a systematic theology. But that doesn't tell us anything about our hearts. We can say that we believe in God. We can give a verbal assent to some faith in Christ. But ultimately, it is our hearts, our minds, and our allegiances that our true faith is lived out. It is seen in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we think, where our priorities lie. Practical atheism is living as if God were not real. Regardless of what we say we believe about God, unless it actually changes the way that we think, the way that we live, then practically speaking, we're an atheist. It is the hypocrisy of acknowledging God with our lips while our hearts are far from him. Now, Jesus is confronting this gap between knowledge and true worship in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' public ministry has just launched, and he's using this sermon to outline what a true believer in God's kingdom truly looks like. True faith was often drastically different than the religious leaders of the day. To begin the sermon, Jesus outlines, uh, as we know in, in the Beatitudes, a nine-part description of what a true kingdom believer looks like. He moves on through a series of corrections about things that they have been taught, things that they had heard, and says, but this is what the Bible says. This is what God teaches us. 
In chapter 6, we see that Jesus addresses the activity of their religious behaviors, their religious practices and observations. He knows, he shows them the hypocrisy of the Pharisees' religiosity by showing them what true worship truly looks like in regards to giving and prayer and fasting. They thought that God was honored by their performative religion, by them being able to exercise a visible form of worship, but in reality it fell well short of what God truly desired and truly required of them. And that gets us to the passage in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be focusing on this evening in verses 19 through 24. Jesus is transitioning from addressing their outward religious practices of prayer, fasting, and giving to show how true worship is is more than that. It's more than the performative religion. It's more than the outward showing of their religious beliefs. In this passage, Jesus deals with the issue of materialism. How a true kingdom believer invests in their eternal reality over the temporal reality. And Jesus gives us a litmus test to help us to determine if we are living with an eternal perspective. Now, this isn't about giving guidance in order to achieve a top-level Christianity, right? Sometimes we think that God has multiple levels, and if you take it really serious, if you really want to buy into this, then you should, subs- you should subscribe to this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, this is base-level Christianity. If you want to know what true faith looks like, how it is exercised and lived out on a daily basis, this is it. This is a baseline for true faith. Now, according to uh, Randy Alcorn in his uh, book, The Treasure Principle, it's a really small book. Um, it's a very impactful and, uh, and encouraging read. I would encourage you to pick it up on, in the church library if you don't want to buy a copy, but uh, it is a, a really challenging read uh, for our hearts. And he says in, in this book, he says, 15% of everything that is recorded of what Christ says in the Bible has to do with money and possessions. 15%. Now, obviously, we know that what Christ spoke was more than the words that we see recorded here, but these are the words that were recorded for our benefit, for our challenge. There isn't a practical part of our lives that better displays where our hearts are than how we deal with stuff, how we deal with the things of this world. Jesus understood the constant tension and the temptation believers would experience. And in this passage, Jesus is going to present us with three charges. Three charges to guard ourselves against the cares of this world. Now what we're going to do, I will read through the passage here and follow along with me, and we'll, we'll look individually at each one of those charges. So follow along with me in verse 19. Christ says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, 
For either one will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the first thing we are to guard against, we see in verses 19 to 21, that we are to guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. He gives a negative command and then follows it up with a positive command, and they get to the root of the issue. In verse 19, we see the negative command. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The idea here, if you look in the Greek, he's, he basically, the, the word here for treasure is the word that we get the word thesaurus from. And he base, it's, it's the same word twice in a row, in a verbal form and a noun form. Don't treasure treasure, is what he says. Don't treasure up treasures. The temptation is for the human heart to place a certain amount of confidence and security in the things that we have. That we, we, we believe that if we're able to, to save enough, if we're able to have a rainy day fund, if we're able to have six months of savings in the bank, uh, that, that we, we can place some level of confidence in that and we can rest easier at night. We have a 401k that's tight. If we are diversified in our investments, that it can be as least affected by inflation as possible, that we feel more secure in our future. He says, don't treasure, treasure, don't store up these things. Now, if you have noticed, an exploding industry in our country today is the storage industry. If you go and you see a big building being built, sometimes you're like, wow, is this a Trader Joe's, right? You're really excited. This is going to be a great new place. And then it's inevitably usually a storage facility and you're disappointed. But these, these storage facilities are popping up all over the country. And so I, I decided to look it up. And there are over 50,000 storage facilities today in our country. 50,000. Now, I, I, I struggle sometimes with numbers. So I wanted to know how can I compare that to, to, to something that I know, something that's a little bit more tangible. Well, as a New Englander, there are 11,300 Dunkin' Donuts in the world. So 11,000 Dunkin' Donuts in the world. There are 18,000 McDonald's in our country, 7,000 Burger Kings in this country, 6,500 Wendy's, and 5,600 Taco Bells. There are more storage facilities than all those combined. Right? And you see those everywhere. There are storage facilities everywhere because we live in a culture where we have to gain, we have to collect, we have to store up the things here. Now, we would be remiss if we moved on from this and we said, well... I am fine with living a life of poverty. I don't like stuff. I don't like things. But I do not believe that what Christ is speaking to here is simply the physical things that you can store up. It's not just stuff. It's not just money. It could be the love of work, a love of status, a love of power. There are a lot of great blessings that God has given us in this life to enjoy but they can easily turn into an idol if held on to too, too closely. Love of home, love of family, love of friends, all of those things if held too, too tightly, too closely, can, can become an idol in our lives. Things that we store up and, and, and distracts our hearts from eternity. Now Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he often does, says things in a very succinct and accurate way. He says, 
Our Lord's injunction means avoiding anything that centers on this world only. Saying Christ here is telling us to guard ourselves on anything that has no redeeming eternal merit. If it doesn't, don't hold on to it tightly. Don't guard it. Don't store it up. Now, Jesus just doesn't tell us, don't do something. But then he tells us why it's nonsensical. He says, don't store up these things. And then gives us a very practical reason for not storing things up, right? Because moth and rust are going to destroy them. Thieves are going to break in and steal them. Either they are going to actively or passively rot. The second law of thermodynamics, it is going to break down. You get something shiny and you take it home. Five years from now, it's covered in dust and you probably haven't given it much thought. Because it is in this world saturated by sin, it is prone to destruction and ultimately will join the destruction of the world. Thieves are going to break in and steal, along with the storage industry, the the security industry is exploding in our country too. You see, where is the human heart in our country? It's there. In in 2017, these are some crazy numbers. 2017, Americans spent $20 billion on home security. Three years later, it had more than doubled to $53 billion. It is thought by the year 2025, it will be an $80 billion industry. Just to make sure that no one breaks in and steals your stuff. It's a massive industry because it's a massive temptation of the human heart. That is where we are prone to go. Ecclesiastes 5.15 tells us, As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again. Naked as he came, shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eye lights on it, it is gone. And suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. It's gone. Flies away. Can't hold on to it. Christ here is admonishing, encouraging these these people, the the disciples that he's speaking to here. He's encouraging them, saying, look, don't try to store these things up. Don't look to gain. Don't look to collect, to hoard these things for yourself. Now, Jesus isn't telling us that we ought to live lives of asceticism. He's not saying that just sell everything you have and go to a monastery and wear burlap for the rest of your life. God, we know in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy in His glory, in His, in His goodness. Proverbs 6 challenges us to be wise and to work hard, to save for a day of famine. That there is prudence, there is wisdom in saving. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. There are two of you that make sure, make sure you're listening to this. As parents are obligated to save for their children. Right? Amen? Not the other way around, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But he says there are, there are reasonable 
practices for us to be able to, 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 to manage money, to manage the things that we have, to exercise wisdom, to not be foolish and not to blow it, not to throw it all out. There is wisdom to, to, and, and trust to be exercised in, in the things that we have. As with everything, Jesus is mainly concerned here with our hearts. The idea is not storing, not treasuring up the treasures, holding on to them. Holding on so tightly, placing your security and your hope in those things. Instead, what he wants us to be is to be generous. To be generous. Proverbs 11.25, a generous man will prosper. He refreshes others, himself will be refreshed. 2 Corinthians 9, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Do not give reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. Someone who is not holding on to those things but sees needs and just lets it fly. Understand that we are the stewards of whatever it is that God has given to us and it is up to us to dispense it in wisdom. Not to hoard it for ourselves. So Jesus' admonishment here, guard your hearts, know that you are going to be tempted to, to store these things up for yourself. And rather than storing up for yourselves treasures on earth, he says, store them up in heaven. There aren't any moths in heaven. There is no rust. There's no consequence of sin in heaven. There's no process of decay and destruction no threat of anyone coming in and removing it from you. First Peter tells us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for us in heaven. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we have a home eternal in the heavens, a building from God, not made with human hands. There's no hint of death or ruin or decay the starting point in heaven is perfection, perfect perfection. And there's no wavering from that. He says, store up the treasures in heaven. Lay for yourselves up these treasures in heaven. Treasure the treasures in heaven. You ask yourself, how do we do that? How, how, I, I can't go to my fidelity account and then transfer money and put it in heaven. I can't do that. How do I store up treasures in heaven? How do, we, how do we fundamentally do this? What are the treasures that we're storing up? First of all, our salvation, first and foremost. Our salvation is secure in heaven. Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God right now, interceding on our behalf. Our salvation is secure in heaven. Our fruit, what is done for Christ, will last, right? Anything you do now in obedience as worship to the Lord, that is storing for yourself up reward in heaven. That is fruit. Investments made in another believer, not financially, primarily. I'm just talking about the time and energy that you spend with someone else. You're pouring your life into them and discipling them and bringing them along to Christ. They are producing rewards in heaven. The proclamation of the gospel that's storing up believers in heaven. You're spreading the gospel. You're going around and preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Bringing people, more people around the throne to worship the Lord. Storing up treasure in heaven. Any monies used for the kingdom of God have an eternal reward and are eternal investments. Money spent 
to, to, to further the kingdom of God, money spent to disciple people, to bring people to a knowledge of who the Lord is, is extending the kingdom of heaven. We see this in Acts 2.45, the early church. People, Pentecost has come. People are, are blown away. The Spirit has come. And they say they were selling their possessions in verse 45 of chapter 2, their belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Suddenly, they weren't concerned with the things that they had stored up. You see, a first evidence of salvation is they let their hands go. They said, I don't need this anymore. Someone has need. I have a means. Let's make it happen. It's one of the first immediate fruits of the gospel that we see in the Bible, is people selling their things in order to meet the needs of others. I was listening to an interview this week, and I, I heard a testimony of a man named Joel Beakey. Some of you are probably familiar with him. Uh, uh, an author of uh, numerous dozens and dozens of books. Uh, and uh, he, was, he was sharing his testimony uh, and, and this was th this lined up so well with with uh, what I was studying. He was 14 years old, okay, and he was desperately seeking the truth of salvation. He wasn't saved. He was reading through all the books in his dad's library. He read the Bible front to back multiple times. He's trying to find out how do I become saved. He he his father had bookshelves of Puritan books. And this unsaved 14-year-old takes it upon himself to clean the bookshelf off and read them all. Well, in the middle of one night, he got saved and eagerly ran down and told his father that he's been saved, he's been redeemed, and he was excited and he was passionate. And he looked at the books that had led him to this salvation experience in Christ and says, other people have to experience this. So he goes to his elders I think there were three elders at the, at the church that he was going to at the time. And he said, I want to start a church library so that everyone can read the books that I read and be encouraged. And they weren't too enthused about that. They weren't, they weren't very excited. And uh, they said, well, if you uh, assemble a book a list for us, uh, all three of us have to approve this, this book list, and then we'll get the books. So he goes home, and he narrows it down to 100 books. Spends hours narrowing this list down to 100 books, and he submits it to the elders. They approved eight. <laughs> they approved eight of the 100 books. And he was a little disappointed. 14 years old, okay? He's a little disappointed. And, uh, and so, but the people, so he, he said, I started a card catalog system for eight books. <laughs> he, he, was, he had foresight. He started a card catalog, three card catalogs for subject, author, and title for eight books. <laughs> and, uh, and people started reading them, and they were growing. And they were, they were growing in their desire for a knowledge of God. They were being challenged in their faith. And the elders were seeing this, and they said, well, I, I guess we probably ought to feed this. And they ended up approving the other 92 books, except they said, we don't have money for it. We'd love to be able to have these in our library. We just can't afford it. Well... Young Joel went back to his home and he remembered that he had $600 saved up in his bank account. And he was passionate about getting people to read these books. So he took that $600 and he bought the other 92 books. And he says, I don't know why, 
but I ran him to the doorstep of my pastor's house and dropped him off and ran away. <laughs> he says, I don't know who he thought would have, who else would have dropped off these other 92 books on his doorstep, but he said, I, I wanted to get it done. So I dropped him on the, the doorstep of my pastor and ran away. And he says, you know what happened? People started reading these and people got saved because of the truths that were in these books. Today, he runs Reformation Heritage books and sells thousands upon thousands of books each year and putting solid works of Puritan, uh, uh, Puritan works in the hands of believers all around the world. And I heard that testimony. I thought, here's a 14-year-old by the time he, he may have been up 15 by the time he was rounding up these books. Here's a young man, passionate about the glory of God and helping other people see the glory of God. He says, well, I got $600 here. God's provided it. I'm going to pour it in. And now God has seen the fruitfulness of this ministry. And it has led to people being saved. That has produced fruit, eternal fruit. Not only for Joel Beakey, but for everyone who has come into contact with this ministry. We are called to purposely be investing in heaven. Every day we must work to build a mindset of investing in heaven and not here. This is simply not our home, as comfortable as we like to make it. Now imagine you're on vacation. You have a, 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 uh, an Airbnb that you've rented. It's a really nice place, but you get there and, and I, I could, uh, my, my sister was visiting us and they had an Airbnb that was very humorously decorated. Uh, and it seemed that the girl was uh, a, a passionate artist, um, and she liked displaying her own art uh, in, in, in the home, and, and had there was a throw blanket that was actually a bath mat on the, uh, on the back of the couch. And so she was taking pictures, and she was showing it to me, and it was kind of funny, and we had a laugh. And imagine, my sister is at this Airbnb, and she looks around and says, this is, this is crazy how this is decorated. And she goes to Home Goods. And she blows thousands of dollars at home goods and brings them back to this Airbnb to decorate it. Or I, I guess this is a Christian. She went to Hobby Lobby. Okay. She went to Hobby Lobby and she got all the, the nice cute Christian sayings and all the, the shabby chic stuff and, and decorated, spent thousands of dollars and all this time and money and energy to make this Airbnb location look great. Step back and you look and you're like, ah. This looks pretty good. And then you leave. And you don't take any of it with you. You leave it behind. Now, obviously, anyone who has rented an Airbnb knows you don't invest in the Airbnb. You don't decorate it. Never mind the fact that the owner of the Airbnb probably wouldn't, wouldn't appreciate it. But it'd be ridiculous to spend any amount of money to decorate something that you're leaving. How foolish would that be to invest a dime that you couldn't take with you. And that's what Christ is saying. Store it up in heaven. You'll have it there. You're not taking it with you. Now, in Luke chapter 12, in Luke chapter 12, you see the parable of the rich fool. And, uh, and at the end, in, in verse 32 of, of Luke 12, Christ says, Fear not, little flock, 
for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The good news is you have the kingdom of God. That's exactly what Christ is speaking about in the Sermon on the Mount. That is your future. You have the kingdom of God. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give them to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches or moth destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That is the exact point that Christ is making here in Matthew chapter 6. Saying, you want to live out your citizenship? Don't hold tightly to the things that you have in this world, but seek to honor the Lord with the things that God has given you. Those possessions that you have, they're not yours, they're God's. Don't hold tightly to them. This is the idea of the person who has built up a wealth. He has now come to the conviction of, of, of Christ and the kingdom, and, and he, is, he is saved, and he's looking, he says, well, what do I do with all this? Like Zacchaeus, what do I do? Zacchaeus gave it away. Thought to make it right. Didn't hold on to it, didn't grip it tight. At the end of the account of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, Imagine the rich young ruler is sitting and asking the son of God, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Christ tells him and he says, oh, I did that. Now what? What does Christ tell him? Well, go and sell everything you have, right? And he went away sad because he was a very wealthy man. Face to face with the son of God. And he goes away sad because he's got a lot of stuff that he likes more than Jesus. More than God. May that not be true of us. Christ says here, where your treasure is, that is where your heart is also. It's been said by many, many people, you want to know where someone's heart is, look at their bank account, right? Look at their checkbook. Where they're spending their money, that's where your heart is. Jesus here is saying that it is not just your outward act of worship if it is not followed up with your heart. And your heart is displayed in the things that you have and what you do with what God has given you. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 8 says, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. That is what we need, and that is what God will provide. John Stott said, materialism tethers our hearts to the earth. That is the tension that I fear. That my heart is tethered to this world by the things that I have, the things that I could have the comforts that I could collect. I don't want my heart tethered to this world. So the first thing we must do is guard our hearts. The second thing we must do in verses 22 and 23 is guard our minds. Now this may seem out of place on a cursory reading. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. You're like, where did we go? How did we get here? What are you talking about? I finished teaching Bible study. We were going through this, and uh, I, I, 
I teach on Zoom and I'm up in my room at my desk and I'm teaching. And I come back downstairs afterwards and I get uh, a, a recap from my family to, you know, did, how bad did I butcher it? And, uh, and my son said, I have no idea what you said. I didn't understand it at all. So clearly I did not effectively communicate what it was that Christ was saying here. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now you'll notice he says the eye. He doesn't say your eyes, plural. I don't believe Christ isn't speaking here of your physical eye. What he's talking about here is your mind. What is your mind set upon? I believe he's speaking that the eyes represent our minds and our attention. Where is the focus of your mind? Where, where, are your, where is your heart, your mind focused? What are you thinking about? What, are you, what is your attention on? He says, if, if, if you're, well, he says the eye is the lamp of the body. So the, the access for light to come into your body, into your life, is through your eye. It takes it in. If your eye is healthy, he says, and healthy here, it's like sound. It's functioning purely. It's, it's single, singularly devoted. He says, if it's, if it's functioning correctly, then your whole body will be full of light. So what he's saying here is that if your eye is healthy, if your perspective, your focus is right, then you will understand and see things for how they eternally are. You will not be distracted and deceived by the world that says you have to have this, you have to have that, this is important or that is important. If your eye is healthy and it is sound, then the light of eternal life will be shining into your life and you will understand what is eternally true. If your eye is functioning as God would want it. One commentator said, a healthy spiritual eye, namely the mind, will brighten his inner life and guide him morally and spiritually and keep him in contact with the Heavenly Father. Saying if your eye is functioning, your mind, your focus is functioning as God wants it to, you will not be distracted by the deceitfulness of the world. But... If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And bad here, it's interesting. There's multiple words that Christ could have used. And here, it's poneros, which is evil. It's not just faulty. It's sinful. If your focus is sinful, if your focus is on the things of this world and not on the eternal things, then your whole body will be full of darkness. It's an eye that is so blinded by the distractions and appeals of the world, it can't process the light or see the eternal reality of things. That is why you see some believers who are passionate and can see the eternal weight of glory ahead of them. They see the invisible, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. And you have other believers who are like, I, I just can't seem to tear myself out of this. I can't get my attention. I'm struggling to get my attention off of these things, off this stuff. Because their focus is wrong. If the eye is bad, it doesn't matter how much light there is. There will be only darkness. If you start to go blind, it doesn't matter how, 
how high the wattage of the light bulb is, you're not going to see it. If the attention and focus is on materialism, the things that you can have, the here and the now, the eternal will be entirely missed. Sin taints and blurs our perspective. It makes us blind. So take yourself through a process of self-confrontation. Do you find it difficult to maintain an eternal perspective and find your heart so easily tempted to desire the temporal things of this world? We must train our minds to be drawn to the eternal reality, to set our, things on the th- set our mind on the things that are above, as Paul tells us in Colossians. You want to see this going in the wrong direction. We're called Demas. Paul in 2 Timothy, near the end of his life, says to Timothy that Demas, at the most dire time that Paul needed people, that Demas was in love with this present world. The darkness had blinded him. And we certainly do not want to be Demas, so guard your mind, focus it on the eternal. Thirdly, we must guard our allegiances. Guard our allegiances. Verses 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When your heart and mind are not guarded, your allegiances will be torn. If you fail the first two things here, then your allegiance, if you find your allegiance being torn, if your, your, your focus is, is going trying to go in both directions, it means you have not guarded your heart, you have not guarded your mind. Therefore, your allegiance is threatened. The language here is of slavery. Now, we're familiar with the slavery system, and we've uh, spoken much about the slavery system at the time that Christ would have been writing this. There was no such thing as a two-owner slave, where two people had ownership over the same person, that they, they served both masters. That was nonsensical. The hearers of this would be like, yeah, that, that, that doesn't make sense. You can't serve, yes, you cannot serve two masters. That would be an impossibility. It's very similar to the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 6. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. You cannot be a slave to both. You cannot serve either in, in both capacities. On the surface of things, you, you see here, you, you, you cannot serve both God and money. And you would look at it and you would say, what kind of fool, when given the opportunity to serve the God creator of the universe or the created order, what kind of fool would choose the created order? Romans chapter 1, humanity would. Because sin makes us foolish. Sin makes us short-sighted. Satan has had thousands of years of experience about how to entice the human heart to the created order. And it is working in perfection in our country today. John Calvin says, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. 
if your riches are where your affection and your heart and your attention and your thoughts are, then God has no authority over that situation. We will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. Very black and white. There's, there's no mixing. There's no area of, of gray here. He's saying either you're going to serve the things that you can have in this world or you're going to serve the creator of the universe. Choose wisely. One calls us to look to the unseen. The other calls us to look to the seen. One calls us to live by faith. The other by sight. One calls us for to set our mind on the things above. The other on the things that are below. One beckons us to life. The other drags us to death. One delivers true eternal satisfaction. And one only brings satisfaction but for a moment. One gives us God, the other one gives us this fallen world. When we look at it in terms of our reward, of what we could have, we must confront our hearts and our minds to make sure that our allegiance is with the Lord because nothing else makes sense. And now as I wrap up this evening, I want to read a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote to you because he says things very, very well. <laughs> he says, there then is the way in which we can lay up treasures in heaven. It all comes back to the question of how I view myself and how I view my life in this world. Do I tell myself every day I live that this is but another milestone that I am passing, never to go back, never to come again. I am pitching my moving tent a day's march nearer home every day. That is the great principle of which I must constantly remind myself of, that I am a child of the Father placed here for His purpose and not for myself. Every day, we are picking up our tent and we are moving it one day closer to the Lord. The last couple of days, some of the guys and our daughters were up at Camp Maranatha and uh, for the father-daughter weekend. And we were, um, Mike was talking with uh, Brenda. And Brenda, uh, if you, you know, um, her husband passed away. He was the founder and had built much of the camp there. And he had a, a very painful uh, end of his life, much sickness. And she is not in great health either. And Mike went and know, has known her for some time and, and asked her how she was doing. She was blunt. She said, I want to go home. I want to go home. I'm ready to go home. And we talked about this over dinner last night. And the first thought is like, wow, that's sad. The first thought is like, oh, she, she's tired. She's sick. She's in pain. She's lost her husband. She's lived a long life. And the first thought is you feel sad for her. And then you stop and you ask yourself, why, do I, why would I be tempted to feel sad for her? 
because she's not finding joy and satisfaction in the things of this world, because she hasn't got enough stuff and things to entertain her, because she's not looking forward to some momentous life event or some event in our country, our world in the upcoming days, weeks, months, years. We talked about it, and her perspective is on Christ. Her perspective, her, her treasure is in heaven. She wants to go to heaven. That's her home. That's where she wants to be. I think one of the things that I've been struggling with lately, personally, in my own heart and mind, I'm 41 now, and I don't feel like I've necessarily had the life experience in my life to be able to, to look back and say I'm ready to be done. Uh, that uh, I don't feel the, 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 I've had enough aches and pains on a daily basis. I don't feel that I've necessarily experienced enough tragedy in my life that I would say I'm ready to be done. I'm ready for Jesus to call me home. But what I don't want is to say I want to be here and I want to stay here. I don't want to fall prey, and I pray this is, is all of our conviction and desire as, as we read through and study this passage. I don't want us to fall prey to thinking merely in terms of what we have here and what we collect and being comfortable but that we are actively and and joyfully and cheerfully, not painfully, storing up treasures in heaven, not holding tightly to the things that we have here and what God has blessed us with, not looking to keep things comfortable and sane and nice, but willing to let go of anything that God has blessed us with for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the other believers. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is setting the record straight of what true belief looks like. Jesus has spent time explaining it isn't necessarily about the outward actions. It's not about impressing the people around you with how religious you are. It's about the heart that shows where your true allegiance is. Near the end of the sermon, Jesus states one of the, some of the most frightening words. He says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, not, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, workers of lawlessness. Jesus is calling them out for their practical atheism. They say they believe in God but it is not shown in the things that they do and the priorities that they have and the life that they live. While their tongues may say they worship the Lord, their hearts and their minds show that their allegiance is somewhere else. But Jesus doesn't use the term practical atheism in his preaching. He says, hypocrites. Jesus, for Jesus, the thought of a believer who wasn't consumed completely and wholly for the kingdom of God, but instead was distracted by the vanities of life, was not a kingdom believer at all. They are a hypocrite. They say one thing, but they live something else. Through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling out the hypocrisy of 
false belief and showing us that a true kingdom believer is not tethered to this world, but yearns for the home of heaven. And it should be all of our desires to not be the hypocrite. To not be the person that says, this is what I believe, but my heart shows me something else. But that may, may God align our hearts and minds together that our allegiance may be with God alone. Let us pray. Dear Lord, this world that you have seen fit to place us in, God, this culture that we find ourselves surrounded in, God, it is so thick with materialism, with calls to, to hold on to things, to store things up, to guard things. We know that that is where our hearts are tempted to go, to be comfortable, to get things that are nice and new and shiny, distracting. God, I pray, Lord, that you would stir up in myself and in the saints and the brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, an attitude, a heart condition of laying it all out for the sake of the gospel. Not holding on to anything, not treasuring these treasures, not holding them close, but opening our hands and letting them go where you would want them to go. Lord, these things that you have blessed us with, we are but stewards. May they be used for your glory to store up treasures in heaven. May they be used to show us the light of eternity upon our minds. And may they be used, Lord, to build our allegiance upon you. This shows the world that you are our master and not the stuff, not the money, not the God of this world, not the prince of the power of the air. May by our actions, God, it be evident and clear that we are not living for this world, but for the next. Praise your name. Amen.